This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This Master Brewers podcast is proudly sponsored by Barnum Mechanical, a full-service design build firm specializing in turnkey process and utility systems for the brewing industry. You know beer. We know breweries. Hops have enzymes that are capable of breaking down starch or dextrins, turning them into fermentable sugars. And um, and as long as you've got yeast around, you're gonna get alcohol production, CO2, um, decrease in specific gravity. It's very clear that this phenomenon was very well known in 1893. And it was in fact, one of the reasons that people dry hopped was to sort of, you know, dry out the beer a little bit and, um, and increase the alcohol and so on. This week on the show, Dry Hop Creep, a.k.a. the freshening power of hops. Now, here's our guests. Hi, this is Tom Schellhammer. I'm a professor at Oregon State University. Yeah, Jason Perkins, brewmaster at Allagash Brewing Company. Hi, Luke Chadwick, senior scientist at Bell's Brewery. Hi, I'm Andy Farrell. I'm the brewing innovation manager at Bell's Brewery. Um, yeah, sure. So I guess my involvement in this whole thing... Um, Really, uh, it was when Luke was quality manager and I was our brew house manager. We um, basically, uh, through looking at a lot of beer analysis, noticed that there was there was something going on with the ABVs of our beers. Um, and how long ago was this? Um, really, it started in earnest probably seven years ago. Okay. 2011. And made, yeah, 2011. Um, and in some ways, there had been some, I think, some things going on even prior to that um but in yeah in 2011 basically because of of our process and when we would analyze beers we would see beers that would you know essentially what we call flatline so the the fermentation would stop and then we would run one more analytical test before package to ensure compliance and when we'd look at that beer the beer would move right and um it would move sometimes pretty significantly uh with a dropping, um, uh, you know, you know, sometimes uh, a pretty significant, very in a variable way, but in sometimes very significant way. And ABVs would move, and occasionally they would move in a way where it would cause uh, action from the brewery because we we may get knocked out of uh, of a compliant range on a beer. I assume very few people were talking about this, you know, that many years ago. Did you, you know, did it take you a while to put two and two together to, to look at hops or was it that something that kind of, you know, clicked fairly quickly? So I think, um, for us, it, we knew that there was something to dry hop beers drying out a little more. That mm -hmm. was something that we knew. We didn't know why or, um, exactly everything that was going on. It's complicated. There's a lot going on there. We always... Uh, back then we would attribute it to, to mixing that would happen. Like you would, you'd add the hops and you'd cause a bunch of agitation in the beer and, and kind of get, get everything going again. 
Um, you know, we talked about glycosides for a while as, as a potential reason. Luke, do you want to talk about hop creep was something that you talked yeah. to somebody about a number of years ago as well. So basically for me, this really, you know, this came on the, the radar at the same time as for Andy around 2011. And that's when we were getting you know, really serious about ABV compliance and, and really sort of, you know, tightening our belts, becoming the sort of larger brewery that, that, that we've become. Um, and most of our beers were very well under control from an ABV compliance standpoint, but it was the dry hopped beers that um, were certainly just more variable. And, and we you know, run into um, cases where we, where we couldn't ship it. It's out of compliance. So how did you address it? What did you, what did you start to, you know, how did you start to tackle that problem? So, okay. So many times over, over those years, I attempted um, different types of literature searches. Um, I just assumed someone must have looked at this because it, it became apparent to us. So after, you know, not too much time that this is a, a, a real effect. It's, it's not a, a small effect. It's, you know, big enough to, you know, certainly to notice if, if you're paying attention. And, and, um, and I just kept, um, talking myself out of like, you know, jumping into the lab and, and, you know, trying different stuff. Cause I, I figured I'd, you know, find a, a starting point and I, and I really never found anything. And until it was just about a year ago, um, when it was Andy, uh, I'm not sure if it was Andy or John ran into Jason at a, at an MBAA conference somewhere. And we're, we're discussing this, um, long story short, a conference call was set up. I got to participate in that conference call and we were, you know, essentially just kind of telling each other stories about, about our, you know, our experiences with this, this dry hop creep. And it was in that conference call that they turned me on to this paper from 1941, um, out of England. And it had the phrase hop diastase. The you know hop um, hops and the diastase like the you know <clears throat> diastatic power you know coming out of that meeting with um, uh, Jason and Tom Shellhammer uh, with this this sort of new intel there's this concept hop diastase I googled that and uh, some months before that uh, apparently uh, Google had um, archived scanned and archived and, and added to Google Books essentially like all of the uc davis brewing library you know 75 years old and older all the old brewing books from uc davis is now an unbelievable resource currently available through books.google.com anyway um search that in google stumble across this paper from 1893 um uh by um horace brown and harris morris who I didn't know, and but I've, I've learned um, since then that these are you know pioneers in, in plant physiology and just you know how enzymes work, how how photosynthesis works. These were some of the you know some of the most important um, scientists in the history of plant research, and it so happened that they looked at this very particular problem, and uh, you know in 1893 they 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 went into it with a similar sort of set of questions that that we had you know in 2011 through 2017 essentially like. Like what could it be? And, and and they sort of broke it down to, um, I think four things. It could be simply that hops have fermentable sugars, and when you get bad hops to beer, you're just adding sugar, and that's that explains it. Um, they quickly ruled that out. They also um, uh, proposed the. Uh, the thought that that maybe hops have wild yeast on them and that it's you know wild yeast that's responsible for maybe breaking down dextrins and you know doing doing some after fermentation you really have to read the original brown and morris work to to uh 
to, to get a sense for how um, so how prolific, how much time they spent on this. But but you really get a feel from their text that they were very familiar with wild yeast, and uh, and 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 this was not wild yeast. It had a, just a very different behavior. Wild yeast takes you know weeks, if not months, to to really sort of rear its ugly head. Whereas this is you know almost instantaneous. That same day you start to see activity after after dry hopping. So they ruled out uh, um, that hops has fer- fermentable sugars. They ruled out uh, wild yeast. Um, the, then the, the third one that hops have enzymes that are capable of breaking down starch or dextrins, turning them into fermentable sugars. And, um, and as long as you've got yeast around, you're going to get alcohol production, CO2, um, decrease in specific gravity. And they, you know, in 1893, did a pretty remarkable job, you know, by... The standards of the time of, of you know i don't want to say proving that um but but um they 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 left a you know very little doubt that the cause of what we know as hop creep i should mention that that this term the freshening power of the hop comes from brown and morris's work they in this 1893 paper they they um, wrote that phrase a few different times a few different ways and really since then we've sort of taken um taken a 180 you know on this and, and try to see it as a as a positive thing when you when you read the brown and morris work it's very clear that this phenomenon was very well known in 1893 and it was in fact one of the reasons that people dry hopped was to sort of you know dry out the beer a little bit and um and increase the alcohol and so on it sounds like they also spent more time coming up with a more elegant term for it than than hop creep which could easily be confused with the a cellarman who stares a little too long, or maybe the, the hop salesman who always drops by unannounced, you know? <laughs> I like it. Yes. Let's re- rebrand um, hop creep and refer to this particular thing as the freshening power of the hop. I'm, I'm all for it. Jason, when did you first encounter hop creep? You know, I, I think ours is kind of a unique situation where, you know, we at Allagash, we actually don't do a ton of, of dry hopping in general, where our hop usage is kind of on the lower side in comparison to the majority of craft brewers. Um, but what we do uh, exclusively is we bottle condition everything. Um, so, and we have from the beginning, so we tend to track that stuff, re- a couple things really closely. One, extract uh, in the bottle uh, and CO2 in the bottle, of course. And we track those very closely, extract with alkalizer and uh, CO2, we actually use a non, uh, non-destructive uh, selective CO2 meter um, for, for uh, testing bottle uh, carbonation. So when we started making uh, a few uh, dry hop beers, we started seeing this weird phenomenon where we would see unexpected attenuation in the bottle, um, and some to the point where we actually had to dump some beer as a result of it. So we, we really started digging into it from that perspective. We, we you know, I know uh, the folks at Bell's talked a lot about ABV compliance. We kind of saw it on the CO2 production side uh, when we started making a beer using dry hops. Um, the first time we saw it was probably back in, in 2015 um, on a seasonal beer. But really, we started seeing it mostly when we had a new beer that we hit the market with that was a year-round uh, dry hop beer um, in 2016. After you encountered the hop creep phenomenon, you set up an experiment to determine if over attenuation could be explained by dry hopping. Tell us about that. Yeah, we sure did. Yeah, um, you know, our our lab manager, our QC manager here, Zach Boda, was was 
had this theory. It's basically his theory that he thought something funky was going on with these dry hops and creating somehow creating an extended fermentation. Um, you know, we have pretty extensive micro work here, so we were quite sure that uh, it wasn't a, a wild yeast situation. Um, so we dug into it a little a little closer. So the first thing we did with this beer, um, which we make year-round called Happy Table Beer, is is we took and just wanted to see a kind of on a on a bench top whether we would see this effect. So and and kind of try to pinpoint the cause. So we started with um, just a simple control with with no treatment to it at all and monitor the extract over time. Uh, we then also added um, we added just yeast, so nothing else, uh, and then added um yeast and sugar i'm sorry yeast and dry hops in, in treatment two and then treatment three was just dry hops and we just monitored the extract over time um and what'd you see there what we saw is in the control we saw no change in extract in the treatment where we're just adding um uh, some sugar only we did not see a drop in overall extract after that sugar referments away uh in in the most interesting thing we saw was by adding um dry hops uh, we saw a pretty significant drop in extract in a relatively short period of time just in a few days to start and over time uh, a continual drop in extract from around floor play-doh to below 3.4 play-doh so a pretty significant drop uh saw the same effect when dry hops were added uh, on their own and that that was so you're saying you saw the same effect regardless of whether you added sugar and yeast correct yeah Wow. Correct. Now so, it is it is worth noting that you know we have um, you know the, there's yeast in solution here. This isn't this isn't beer that uh, it, it is sterile filtered. So there's yeast in solution to do work on these enzymes right. on the, the broken down starches. Okay, that makes sense. So then after that, you did another experiment to find out if the yeast strain, the hop cultivar, and the base beer had any real impact on this over attenuation. Tell us about how you set up that experiment and what you found. Yeah, to, to me, the second experiment is kind of the simplest way to kind of explain this phenomenon. Uh, and, and it's something we decided to do in-house using somebody else's beer. So we took uh, a, a standardized base beer that we knew we could rely on. Uh, we chose Coors Banquet beer, you know, obviously beer that's been made for a long time. Uh, and it's very consistent and it's a very dry beer. Uh, we wanted to see what the effect of adding uh, dry hops to that beer in the presence of yeast and without the presence of yeast. So we, we did a, a an experiment where we took Coors Banquet beer and added um, and added uh, varying different yeast strains to it. So I added our house yeast, uh, a secondary uh, what we call our reserve strain, which is a strain we bottle condition a lot of our beer with, and then just Chico yeast. Those are the three yeasts we used. So in in half of the uh, experiment, the beer Coors Banquet just simply got yeast added to it. The other three got the same yeast strains plus uh, dry hops at about uh, 10 grams per liter. So, you know, a fairly heavy dose of hops at 2.6 pounds per barrel or so. Um, we used Cascade hops, just chose to use a hop that's very commonly used in American craft brew. And then we monitored that extract over time. Uh, and what we found was pretty interesting. You know, we saw a very slight drop in extract in all cases except for the control. So our yeast strain we added... You know, we're using Belgian style strains and then a Chico strain. It's a very slight drop in extract. Um, but more, more importantly and more interestingly, once we took uh, and add dry hops, 
to these, we saw a huge, uh, a huge drop uh, in oh, extract. I'm sure you were talking to other folks in the industry as you were going down this rabbit hole. We've got our friend Tom Shellhammer here. Tom, tell us how you entered the equation. Yeah, I got a email from Jason maybe in the fall of 2016 or so, I think it was, Jason, sometime, I think about two years ago. And uh, you described this phenomenon to me and said, hey, you want to give this a try in your lab, see what's what? And uh, and so I said, sure. So we, we set up the exact same experiment, number two, that Jason was just talking about. Got some Coors Banquet beer and and had three different treatments, you know, Coors by itself, Coors with yeast, Coors with um, hops, and Coors with hops and yeast. And and as we were comparing the data, the data, you know, these are two different United States and the data were just like sitting right on top of each other. So it was pretty remarkable. It was also pretty remarkable to see the extent of this refermentation that occurred. Coming up. And it appears that when you remove the hops from the beer, that the phenomenon is stopped at that point. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. This episode is brought to you by... ABS Commercial is a full-service brewery and parts outfitter. From our Raleigh headquarters to our Denver office, we proudly offer brew houses and fermenters from three barrels and up, yeast brinks, boilers, kegs, chillers, triclamp, and other stainless parts, all with the quickest delivery and lead times in the industry. Learn more at abs-commercial.com or call 877-BREW-ABS. ABS Commercial. We are brewers. Here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. The Diastatic is Detection Methods and Control Measures webinar is August 1st. District Philly holds its summer meeting at the Pennsylvania Sam Adams Brewery August 3rd. The annual District Texas summer meeting is the weekend of August 3rd in Kerrville. The ASBC MBAA Brewing Summit takes place in San Diego this August. Register at mbaa.com where you can also view the full counter events with more details or find a district meeting near you. Now back to the show. It was cool on two levels. One, just like surprising how much re-fermentation could occur and that this experiment um, that was actually a fairly simple one could be reproduced so effectively. So, And then you did something, you, you did some more work after that to try to dig a little deeper into the enzymes, right? Yeah, exactly. So we we we've done a number of things, and it kind of started as like a, a little project. Then it's sort of I don't know, pulling on a thread on a sweater, or you know, peeling back the layers of the onion. It was um, it seemed pretty clear that there was this uh, what appeared to be hop derived enzyme activity. And as Luke pointed out, um, there's some precedent for this. It's just really old precedent and had kind of gone quiet of uh, British brewers a century ago finding this re-fermentation in dry hopped cask beers. And um, 
And so we thought, oh, you know, if we, we've got enzyme kits that we can use to measure enzymes in malt, maybe we can adapt those to measure enzymes in hops. And, and it took some work. But yeah, we found um, four different enzyme kits that allowed us to to verify that there was some activity of alpha amylase, beta amylase, um, very small amounts, uh, um, I mean, very bit small activity levels relative to malt, but still present. And then also what I think was really surprising is the presence of some uh, alpha uh, amyloglucosidase activities and limit dextrinase activities. And the limit dextrinase activity was really, really low, but still enough to, to, to give us a, a, a positive read on this assay and those last two enzymes are important because they they can debranch branch dextrins or branch starch and so um it was kind of cool to see that we've got um you know, re- this residual extract in beer that has um a quantity of uh, you know a big portion of the residual extract is made up of unfermentable branch dextrins unfermentable because the mashing process hasn't broken them down sufficiently and that there's uh, some debranching activity present in the hops that can further break down those dextrins, and then the alpha and beta amylase coming behind and, and start producing simple sugars. And, and so we we saw that from an enzyme assay kit, and then we went through and looked at these sugars and dextrins using liquid chromatography, and and sort of verified just what I described that you can you can see the residual extract of of Coors Banquet beer degrading in the presence of yeast, I'm sorry, in the presence of hops and in the absence of yeast and of uh, fermentable sugars, mainly maltose, but also some glucose and some maltotriose. And I think what's also interesting is that we've discovered that Coors Banquet's got a a low level of maltose and glucose, which sort of surprised me, you know, a residual amount of of fermentable sugar in a lager beer. And I asked one of my my buddies at at Coors and and he said, you know, in his classic state, I can neither confirm nor deny that there's fermentable <laughs> sugars left behind. But that that drop in in real extract that Jason saw through the addition of just yeast is the yeast sort of mopping up this residual amount of of um, of sugar. So it makes it so tasty, Tom. Yeah, I know exactly. It's kind of like maybe just a low level of sugar is like the MSG of light beer. So who knows. <laughs> There you go. So how can how can a brewer predict whether or not they're going to experience hop creep for a given recipe or hop? You know, it's kind of, in my opinion, it's kind of vexing because when I talk to various brewers, brewers are not unified in how they describe to me the headaches that come from this phenomena. Some brewers say, oh, this is not a problem with me. It's, it's, we don't actually see it. And it may be because of the timing of their hop addition. You know, it may actually be occurring, but they don't see it as a like a two-stage fermentation or refermentation because it's happening simultaneously with the with the main fermentation. And I'm speculating, but there are other brewers that that describe you know tremendous headaches that come from this. And if anything, the headaches that they say that are even worse are the a, a diacetyl spike that is most likely induced by this refermentation. But but I'll let the brewers talk about this because they're the guys that are making beer every day. Yeah, I can start by, and I, and I can, what I'll do is I'll, I'll explain what we've done because it's a very isolated uh, scenario, but I'll also say that I think the important thing is just for brewers out there to be aware of a phenomenon. Because as, as Tom said, it really depends on, you know, your, the way in which you're adding hops, the length of time it's on the hops, the temperature of the hops, whether you're packaging with or without yeast afterwards. Um, so I think, you know, my, 
my approach with this has always been just get this information out there because, you know, individual brewers are going to have to make their own individual plans on how to handle this. But it's really important for people to know, uh, especially given the fact that so many people these days are packaging their beer with yeast, some portion of yeast. You know, the days of, of uh, pad filtration in the craft beer industry aren't gone, but they're not as common as they used to be. So there's, all, there's some count of yeast in the majority of craft beer in the package. So if this effect of breakdown of starches happens and you don't let it happen before you put it in the package or are not aware that it's going to happen, you know, there's going to be some dangerous uh, packages on the shelves. And, you know, I've heard anecdotally from a number of brewers like, oh, that's what's been causing this issue for us for all these years. So I think the key is just understanding the phenomenon and then applying that understanding to your given process. I'll say for us uh, specifically, uh, it was really a simple fix. We basically let the reaction happen in the tank. Um, for us, this beer that we saw it with was a new uh, brand for us. So we didn't actually have a true-to-type per se uh, out there. So we, we could make an easy fix to it by simply, instead of adding um, the dry hops at the end, complete end of fermentation for a short period of dry hopping, we now add them at the very tail, tail end of primary when yeast is still active and happy. We let the uh, uh, continual breakdown of starches occur in the tank. We let the, cons- the, the, the yeast consume that before it goes to the package. So that's how we've approached it here with, with this specific beer. Um, but like I said, it's just every brewer is going to have to make their own decisions. They just need to, they need to understand that this is a real phenomenon that does happen. And if I can piggyback on that and, and say I absolutely agree, the, the only way to know for sure how it's going to impact your beer is to make the beer and see how it's impacted. However, I will say we, we've got a lot of mileage out of um, a very simple experiment where you take the beer in question, the beer that you're going to dry hop, take a sample of it, split it into two, add your hops to one half of it and not to the other half. Let it go for a, a couple of days or you know whatever amount of time that you think is practical for, for the way you intend to use the hops. And use whatever gauge that if you're if you're concerned about VDKs, then well, measure VDKs on both the dry hopped and the undry hopped. If you're concerned about ethanol production, CO2 production, and so on, you know, measure it over time um, and, and compare just the differences. What do you see? Do, do, is it any different? Much easier than it is to do those experiments in you know production scale fermenters. I can tell you that. <laughs> you know, to add to that. So we have some advantages at Bell's, I think, because of our process. Um, I would certainly agree with, with what uh, Tom said about uh, when you're adding your hops being very important to this. So um, we've certainly found that you know, if you're adding your hops during a point in primary fermentation where the yeast is still very active, that this effect may be seen as uh, part of the standard fermentation, I guess. Um, you know, we, we have some processes and some analytical checks along the way that that uh, clued us into this and uh, that, that have been very helpful. One thing that hasn't been mentioned that I know uh, in some of the experiments that Luke ran, some of the some of the benchtop stuff um, was very clear. And an advantage we have as a brewery is that we centrifuge our beer and it appears that when you remove the hops from the beer, that the phenomenon is stopped at that point. And, um, 
you know, certainly in terms of uh, carrying the phenomenon over to bottle and concerns of CO2 stability on the shelf, uh, that appears to be a way to rectify the situation. I have heard some discussion as this as this phenomenon has become a little bit more more known out there. I've heard some suggestion by folks that a way to combat this would be to dry hop cold um, and package cold, etc. I would only caution against that, that, you know, if you dry hop cold, it doesn't stop the effect from happening. It doesn't stop from those starches being broken down into simple sugars. And then you go and package that beer. And even if you if you have a very small count of yeast, that beer is going to sit on a shelf somewhere, whether we like it or not. Yeah. Uh, at somebody out there is going to sit out there. We've seen um, in, in another beer we did on a seasonal basis, a uh, completely centrifuge bright beer that was dry hopped that in theory was bright, but in reality had, you know, maybe 100,000 cells per milliliter or 50,000 cells per milliliter in solution. We saw that this, this same effect of increased extract production in the package. It just took a really long time. Yeah, this I wanted to, to to just chime in here about the residual after effect of the hop exposure. We we've, we've done some experiments with four different commercial breweries that make very hoppy beers, and um, and it was really interesting to just have them send us samples of the beers that we then hung on to and looked at chromatographically over time for changes in their sugar composition. The real extract in none of these beers really changed much. The composition of that real extract changed and change quite considerably in, in for some beers. So you got beer that has been packaged. In many cases, these are beers that have been centrifuged and in some cases also filtered. So they're, they have low levels of yeast. Um, but the, the sugar concentration over time uh, increases. We see the production of both maltose and glucose um, with several months of aging or with accelerated aging or even storage in, in, under refrigerated conditions. And, and we also had, had a beer that we pasteurized alongside this and we could see in the pasteurized beer these changes didn't occur but but in the ones that weren't pasteurized these changes in residual extract did occur so it's kind of reinforcing what what jason was saying um it's it sort of sets up the potential for some interesting safety concerns it also sort of makes me scratch my head and wonder you know are dry hopped beers that age you know as the as the beers age they tend to take on a more sweet like quality as and i've always thought that was a reduction in bitterness but who knows maybe it's actually a production in um sweetness so hmm, interesting interesting this is the first i've heard that the that, that you see sugar production even in dry hopping in the cold this is this is amazing it's kind of telling me that the the yeast or pardon me the hop enzymatic activity persist essentially always going to be active under any sort of real world brewing conditions however the yeast metabolic activity obviously that's only going to occur at at yeast fermentation temperatures interesting it's it's low level but yeah luke i'll I'll show you some data in, in san diego so it's pretty cool cool it sounds like most of the work here has been done on with cascade which makes makes a lot of sense um tom how much uh you know to what extent could there be a varietal component here i mean are are different varieties going to have different enzyme contents yeah they do um but uh it's hard to tease out varietal difference versus agronomic growing differences versus Versus processing versus processing so we just got done with a study looking at 
roughly 30 different commercial varieties that are commonly used for for dry hopping and found that there was indeed quite a variation in enzymatic activity and and within the enzymatic power the nature of that enzymatic activity was different like so in some cases some hops produced more glucose and other other hops produced more maltose and other hops produced more maltotriose and um but so the, the, the take home is that, okay, there is variability, but we also saw that there were some like year to year effects. And, and I think Luke is, has, has done something similar, although maybe not as big a varietal scan, but, but you've just published something that looked at um, different lots of Centennial, didn't you, Luke? And you, you saw some yes. differences. Yeah, we, we had um, been saving samples of Centennial, you know, actual, you know, production um, samples. I, I, I'd grab some, you know, a few hundred grams uh, you know, a couple of times a year and had some that had been sitting, uh, you know, warm stored, basically at room temperature for a couple of years. Um, and, and I always like split the samples and, you know, put half in the freezer and half, half room temp. So I had um, samples going back um, about three years old, of pairs of warm stored and, and frozen stored. And, um, and this was all, all centennial. It's, it's our, you know, our, one of our, we use more centennial than any other, um, variety so it's it's of particular interest um and what we found and so when we set up this sort of laboratory model where we take a you know certain amount of beer from a a, a fermenter and add add the hops in, in the lab um what we found was um so so we studied in one set all centennial hops that were stored warm for three years to um hops that had you know essentially just been harvested and processed you know super fresh hops to like horribly abused cheesy nasty old hops and what we found was um you know some differences uh, but not very significant differences compared to some some earlier work we had done when we were looking at different you know varieties of hops or, or probably better said different samples of hops representing different varieties and you know in that case we found a sort of a wide range of activity um you know for example uh, like a, a citra we found like almost no activity it was like sort of barely above control but, you know barely above you know zero um whereas consistently we found our samples of amarillo and cascade to be have a much greater activity um and, and sort of the, the the range of differences that we saw with these different you know fresh samples of hops uh of different varieties were much bigger differences than what we saw with you know three years of warm storage of of centennial which sort of tells me there's there's a um that this activity is relatively very stable uh, compared to, you know, the, the aroma properties of hops. Like, you know, there's no way in the world you'd consider using three-year-old warm stored hops to, you know, dry hop a, well, at least not an American IPA, um, because all the flavor molecules and whatnot are going to be completely gone, but this activity will, will still be there to, to some degree um, for whatever that's worth. That was Tom Shellhammer from OSU, Jason Perkins from Allagash, and Luke Chadwick and Andy Farrell from Bell's Brewery. Keep listening for more resources on hop creep, or just have a beer with these guys at the upcoming Brewing Summit. 
I'm really looking forward to the ASBC MBAA Brewing Summit coming up this August in San Diego. It only happens every four years, and it's not like any other conference you've attended. The Brewing Summit is 100% the science and technology of brewing. No pep rallies or business lectures, and you'll be surrounded by some of the smartest men and women in our industry. If you can only attend one conference in 2018, this should be it. Register now at mbaa.com. I'd like to give a plug to Luke. I think, Luke, you're presenting at uh, ASPC, correct? True, yeah, I'm, at, I'm presenting at ASPC. Um, you probably, I've, verbal skills are like my weakest skills. And I sw- swear, if you read the paper that we published, you'll get a much better story than, than what I've just told you. So I would like to sort of plug that if, if possible. It's, it's to me way more clearly explained than anything that I said in this uh, interview. Sounds good. And where, where can people find that paper? That's in the Journal of American Society of Brewing Chemists. Um, uh, <clears throat> actually, I just realized if you Google the freshening power of hops, it was the first hit as of uh, a couple of days ago anyway. Um, so check that out. Nice. That's a pretty good search engine optimization you got going on there. Right? Cool. All right, guys. Well, everybody have a good one, and right. I look forward to having a beer with you soon. Cool. All right. Sure. See you in San Diego. All right. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye. Cheers. Thank you. Bye. Just like that first time when we came to town, girl And then there's one thing that I should have said then There may be two things that you should have known